From conceptual. It's Dr. Rick dropping in on you. Hope everybody is having an unbelievable uh, start to your year. Uh, it is Wednesday, so that means it's Wealth Building Wednesday. Uh, today I'm going to actually talk about uh, what's going on on Bruce's Beach in California. I'm going to bring you up to date on that just in case you don't know what Bruce's Beach is about and what's going on and how it ties into wealth building, generational wealth the war on black wealth and and so much more i'm going to try to do it in a reasonable amount of time i know everybody's time is valuable but uh we uh really and truly hello king we really and truly need to gain a real lucid understanding of perspicacity of how wealth is built how war is waged against black wealth how we have to circumvent and navigate these these labyrinthine corridors uh, of schemes and machinations and all of that stuff that moves against us. And so um, I, I, I want to talk about uh, Bruce's Beach and how it ties into reparations, why reparations has to be a secondary conversation at this particular point, if we're really truly talking about generational wealth for Blacks as a collective. Now, there's individual development and building of wealth. And that means as an individual, you have a choice that you can make a difference in the life of your progeny, the, the, your offspring, the future, uh, and the carrying out of projection of your lineage. You can do that as an individual. But if we're talking about collective power, which requires wealth on a collective level, then we have to discuss it within the confines of racial enclaves, uh, political uh, disruption, uh, institutional disruption, private sector disruption, and so many other things that have a massive impact on us. But more importantly, how we think and how we view money as a whole. But individually, you need to do this. I've covered what I'm going to cover today in uh, my book, The War on Black Wealth, Breaking the Code of Generational Wealth. Uh, we've, 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 we've covered that in that book. I also have a course that I'm inviting everybody to take. It is a six-month intensive course in the understanding of wealth building, what it's about, what it takes, how you can do it regardless of your race, the things that you are going to have to face and deal with and navigate. We're going to teach you everything and I'm going to show you how to do it. This isn't about you doing anything specifically with me. If you want to, after this is over with, more than welcome to sit down and talk about it. This is about learning what you need to learn to change the trajectory of the future of your family down the line, long after you're gone. And so, that link is in the description box. As we go through this, you're going to see more and more the need to be aware. Okay, for those of you who don't know what Bruce's Beach is about, Bruce's Beach is a prime strip of real estate on the beach in California. Uh, it was a, uh, several plots of land taken from a black couple. Um, uh, I want to say 1923. 
It was Willer and Charles Bruce. Now, it wasn't just that they had beachfront property, which even back then was special, but it was that they were also using it as a, uh, a resort for black families to come and be on the beach and enjoy the beach. Now, obviously this was to the uh, dismay of white uh, property owners and people in the area who wanted it to be remain exclusively black. And so what happened is the, uh, either a county in California or the state of California, but, but a California uh, governmental agency used eminent domain to seize that property from them, did not properly compensate them, and basically held that property up until recently in which the state of California decided that it should be given back to the descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce. Now, why I was asked to comment on this is that within a short period of time, relatively speaking, based on how long it took for them to return their property, that was this long legal battle and fight for it. And eventually the state said, we're going to give the property back. Well, relatively shortly after that, the nephew decided to sell the property back to, yeah, Manhattan Beach. There you go and sell the property back to Manhattan Beach, uh, California. And somebody asked me to comment or to kind of bring that into context. Um, and I'm gonna get to that. What, what we have to understand is what happened to Willa and Charles uh, Bruce's, Bruce um, in 1923 was not atypical. It was a common thing. One of the interruptions in the development of uh, black wealth was the prohibiting of real estate ownership, property ownership. And even when we would accumulate land, they would find ways to take it. Uh, we, the, a lot of the things and tools and laws and, 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 and policies that were used to extract or to remove property from blacks is still in play in a lot of different ways now. And I'll do the best I can to, to kind of highlight that in a, in a short period of time, because we're talking about a lot of stuff and I've written about all this. It's in the book. It's also a part of the course. Um, in order, one of the things you're going to always hear me say, because I believe this is at the core of our dismay. This is at the core of our dysfunction. This is at the core of why we have so many enigmatic issues is that we fail to develop an understanding of how things work. And when you don't understand how things work, the people who do exploit you, um, there are some things that obviously in 1923 we did not uh, we did not understand and we did not have the force of the mechanism of the power to do anything about but once you understand how something works you have to develop a strategy of how to move around it some things you can't move around forcefully forcefully some things you don't have the might to move around forcefully so then you have to develop strategies by which you move around these things uh, okay so now so what we know is, and I've written six, six extensively on serial force displacement. So what happens is when you take away someone's property, you displace them, uh, whether you do it by em eminent domain, whether you do it by uh, tax lien and tax seizure, tax foreclosure, which is a major move in a way, major way that they gentrify now to take property from out of the hands of black ownership and ultimately transfer that property, i.e. wealth, into the hands of white private sector uh, investors. Um, that's something that is going on. And there's a way to get to deal with that and confront that.
Now, when this first happened, that was this big push to say, okay, that's a form of reparations. They received the land that they their their um their ancestors had lost. They received it back. Well, that that that's simply writing a wrong. That's not reparations. And also you have to understand that reparations has a requisite said that says repair. It's not simply paying you, it's repairing the damage that done. That means that certain things have to be put into place that remove the inequities that create the wealth gap. Simply giving blacks land at this particular point in time in a situation where there are so many different inequities, even in land ownership, even in something as simple as having a home appraised comparable um, we, we we see this consistently it's a common complaint that blacks in in the same area with comparable properties meaning that in size in location within a certain mile radius location erection type and so many other things that their homes are being undervalued by appraisers by hundreds of thousands of dollars and something as simple as removing all of the proof of ownership out of the house so you can't tell whether a black or white family owns it and then having a white friend go in and meet the appraiser changes the appraised value that's culture that's practice that goes all the way back to when we were talking about benign neglect urban renewal uh redlining and so many other things back around the same time that this uh family's property was taken by way of eminent domain um so the essence of this thing is that I am looking at what happened with the property after it was given to the family. The family turns around and sells it back for, I believe, $20 million. Okay, $20 million. Now, the first thing you have to understand is that any time that you look at us on average, obviously there are always exceptions to the rule. We think with a cash heavy mindset, we think heavily in cash, we want the cash. And the truth of the matter is cash is the worst way to carry your wealth, why? Because cash represents uh, a fiat currency in, in, rel in relative thought and it's based on how safe and how strong the value of the dollar is. Well, we know the value of the dollar is constantly uh, diminishing. One of the reasons that we're dealing with so much inflation now isn't a lack of product versus demand as inflation awfully is. It's a reduction in the value of the dollar. The reason that it costs so much to do uh, what we did what, six years ago, um, you can't fill your basket with $150 at the grocery store anymore. Four years ago, you could. Well, what's happening? The inflation. And it's the value of the dollar. The value of the dollar is rapidly increasing over the last 40 years. It's decreased like 75, almost 80 percent. So it's it's definitely not what it was worth in 1923. It's definitely not. So then you have to understand the market that you're in. $20 million in California prime real estate is not a lot of money for that particular property. And you also have to understand the basic uh, the basic uh, components of business. If someone's willing to pay me 18 million or 20 million dollars for something, I can guarantee you it's worth more than that. Nobody's overpaying for something unless they have a mindset of how they're going to bring more value to it. Then it's up to me to determine is there a way that I can bring more value to it? Because what I can tell you is holding hard assets is one of the best ways to protect your wealth. What, what, what I mean by that, when you look at people who are actually wealthy, wealthy and have, especially those who have experienced wealth by way of generational wealth, they have had, what you're going to find is there's not a lot of cash heavy accounts. 
if they have money and it's in the bank, it's because they that that money is needed for fluid movement. In other words, they're spending that money on something, whatever that whatever that is, they're spending it on. They're spending it. If it's money that they're sitting up and they're saying, OK, I don't need it in the next month. I don't need it in the next six months or whatever. However, they have their particular financial system set up. Then what you're going to find is it's going to be invested in art. It's going to be invested in property. It's going to be invested in the stock market. It's going to be invested in something that has a value outside or is protected or hedged against. Um, Dr. Milk, I'm glad you're here since you're the one that uh, requested that I do this. Look, um, so in essence, they're going to hedge or protect their wealth by putting it in hard assets. Hard assets, number one, is, is important for us because we tend to spend uh, recklessly, it's harder to spend when it's in a hard asset. Uh, you have to cash out the hard asset to liquidate it in order to spend. And most of us, the urge to spend is momentary. Somebody says, hey, I got this for this. And you go, I'll buy it. And you don't even need it. Uh, but back to what I was saying. So here we are. And you got everybody in art. Uh, the use of insurance, the use of irrevocable uh irrevocable living trusts. All of these different things uh, are what, what, what is commonly known as the Rockefeller Trust. All of these things are used to protect assets, uh, unincorporated business trusts. One of the things that we do in the uh, Legacy Wealth Program is we actually uh, let you have a consultation with a trust expert to show you how to use trust to pass wealth, to protect it against tax liabilities, to t protect it against uh, uh, valuation in, in currency and in uh, devaluation in currency uh, and so many other things. And plus, you can control how your money is distributed after your death far greater than you can in a will. If you want to keep your, your estate out of probate, you need to understand the importance of trust because not even a will can do that if your will is challenged by one of your descendants. So there's so many other things that get into it, but what we need to understand here in this particular instance is this proclivity to cash out. We see it with guys who are uh, and women uh, who use their genius to build these unbelievable companies. They get to a certain level and they cash out and they sell. And the whole idea is, well, they have a right to cash out. That's because the belief is in the idea that I have the money. The money actually has less value than the business. One of the ways I protect what I'm building is it's in the company. It's in something that my family can inherit. It's in something that even if the US dollar crashes, I can still do business in other countries using the valuation of universal country uh, uh, currency or the local currency, even if that happens. And it's simply saying, I'm not gonna make myself vulnerable to being uh, li highly li liquidable. And so what you do is you put it in hard assets. The wealthy put it in art. And here's the thing that they understand assets versus liabilities as well. We tend to see our liabilities as assets because they're large purchases. But an asset has two things. It can be used as collateral and it has and it can be insurable. So when you look at an asset, an asset is going to be uh, something of value, something hopefully that holds value, uh, precious metals, art collection, um, and all these things are going to be insured. So you, you, you buy a painting, 
and the painting is $2.5 million. Now you buy the painting at an auction, so you may have gotten it for a discounted price at 2.5. When you have that painting appraised by a, a, an expert that is respected in the industry and they value it at 3.5, you just increase the value of your wealth or your net worth by 1.5 or however much it was, I forgot what I said, but you increased it by that amount. Now you insure it for that amount. So now you have it covered and it's guaranteed and insured for that amount. Now, as values fluctuate, you can have that uh, that insurance policy um, adjusted based on the fluctuation of the value of currency to make sure that the artwork is, is, is protected. Um, I remember first learning this in watching something 30 years ago called Trading Places with Eddie Murphy in it. And in, in that in that movie, he's a, he, he's homeless. And there's these two brothers. I believe it's Lewis and Mortimer, if I'm not mistaken. I may I may be off on one of the names, but they are billionaires and they have these two different uh, uh, differing opinions about uh winners in life basically one believes winners are born others believe winners are created if you put the right you can put any person in the right environment and they will excel other one believes no you're either born with it or you're not so they decide to kidnap eddie murphy off the street put him in the perfect environment and see what happens well when he first gets to the house he starts sticking stuff in his jacket he's looking at all this stuff he's sticking they tell him you don't have to steal it it belongs to you and so he says so all of this is mine so he says, I can pick. So that means I can pick this vase up and just throw it on the ground. So he breaks this vase. And one of them says, man, we paid $50,000 for that vase. And Eddie Murphy gets this big deer in headlights. Look, but the other brother says, yeah, but we insured it for 70. And I'm like, wait a minute. Let's do the math on that. Immediate $20,000 increase. Simply understanding how things work. Well, so what happens in all of this, and I can go on and on and on about this, but let's go back to Bruce's Beach. What we have to understand first and foremost is that the cashing out for whatever reason, and I don't know their personal situation. I don't know what, what was going on. I don't know if it was something they just didn't feel like dealing with or whatever, but the idea that we can cash out. Now, the whole thing is there are a couple of things in thought processes that do not serve over the collective. Now, again, the problem, one of the problems we have as a collective is that very few of us are thinking collectively. Oh, King is on this thing, man. King, uh, King, most people don't realize that marriage is a wealth hack. They don't get it. Real estate and marriage. Marriage is a wealth hack and we don't get it. We don't get that part. But anyway, uh, that's going to be a whole nother topic. Marriage and 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 and, and uh, we're talking real estate today. We're going to have to talk marriage as a wealth hack because they don't get it. It's important to understand that. And uh, I'm going to break that dynamic down uh, in, in probably next week. But here we go. So they they liquidate. Right. So they get rid of the property. The money is never going to be as valuable long term as the property, not just because the value is going to fluctuate, because more than likely they're not going to put it into something that's going to appreciate at the same rate that the property value is appreciating. You got to remember where it's at, the type of people around it and the fact that the median income or the, the income of the residents in this area is nearly three times that of the national average. So these are the type of people who are living here. So that means that the property value is probably going to increase in that. For the city to sit up and pay them $20 million for it to take it back means that it has value. And we have to learn how to sit up and say, now to a person who's never had 
that type of money, you can expect that type of decision. And that is where we have to learn, we have to educate, and we have to build. Here's what I want to talk about. So in essence, it wasn't the greatest move, but we live in a space. There you go. They should have leased it back. That would be something that I would have set up in, in, in the end of my, my list and said, you hold the property, you lease it back, or, or, or you lease it out, and then you hold the rights, you get consistent income coming in, but you still maintain the, 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 the property. And so you own the wealth. Uh, they may be benefiting from it, but you own it. And that is so important. But yes, absolutely right um on that point you know i love the sharp minds that show up here but so here's the thing but when you don't have a collective mindset you're not thinking in the form of collective you're not even thinking in the form of future generational wealth you're thinking in what can i experience now what can i have now what can i do with it now especially if you haven't so that's a part of it it's mindset you cannot have a cash heavy cash-driven mindset and build wealth. Wealth is about longevity. It's about long-term thinking. It's about protecting assets. One of the most vulnerable way to expose your assets is to have it in cash. So that that's that part of it. So what I want to point out is, and I point this out in the book, if you want to get the book, the link to the book is in there. If you want to sign up for Legacy Wealth, where we break down so much, and you can look at the list of things that we cover in this course, that's going to be in the description box. So you can read it. I don't have time to go over it because I want to try to get through this. So one of the things that you look at is when you start to look at just in real estate and the forced act, uh, the forced acquisition or seizure of property owned by blacks over the last 150 years, what you're going to find is a great deal of the disparity in the wealth gap can be found in serial forced displacement by way of property. Now, there are a couple of ways that this has happened. Sometimes it was just brute force. They just came in and took it, ran them off or killed them. It wasn't even illegal. Then they used legal measures. Eminent domain is a legal measure on a federal, on a state, on local and a municipal level. They can sit up and say, okay, because we need this property in order to do this, we will seize this property, but we will pay you fair market value for it. It's the way it's supposed to go down. That didn't happen. But this is done over again. Now, another way that it's being done, and it's being done on a more frequent level, is gentrification. What happens is they drive property values down by, by doing things that drive crime up um, and, and blight up and so many things. And you still see urban, uh, urban, uh, urban renewal practices, uh, benign neglect practices. And then what happens is after uh, the property value is driven down, crime goes, that people... Uh, white investors with uh, funding. Uh, and I'm not going to get into where a lot of that funding comes from. That's a whole nother conversation. But they come in, they buy the property, they build certain things that start to drive the property value up. And what you'll find is, it's funny, I mentioned this, and I, I want to go back to it real quick, because it ties into what I'm saying. Now, I talked about um, property taxes, right, and how they seize uh seize property taxes, or I talked about appraisers. Now, in the same situations in which Blacks were seeing uh, devalued appraisals on their properties for comparable 
uh, properties, which simply means if I compare this to a property owned by a white person that's real similar to my home, it should be very close. If they're within proximity and they're considered a comparable property, the value per square foot should be relatively close. But we're talking hundreds of thousand dollars off. But in the same instance, when you look at taxation, when it's being um, appraised for the sake of school taxes and other taxes, then you see that the black properties are actually taxed higher. It's consistent enough that we understand that it's a problem. So we need to understand that and we need to have ways to deal with that. So here we go. So what happens is in these instances where we see gentrification is they drive down the property value, then they buy it for pennies on the dollar, then they start driving the property value up and eventually the property values take the property taxes to a level that the average person who's been living there for years owning their home that for years probably brought their home for $25 or $30,000 now sitting up and looking at an increased value on a home and they are uh, they are now sitting up and uh, having a problem paying their taxes. So now there's a lien on their property and they're now in, in, in the point of having that property seized or foreclosed on. One of the rapid ways of removing black ownership uh, and, and taking hold of property and then building something that in many instances, by way of racial discrimination and by way of elitism and classism, excludes blacks. So again, I lose my property and then I get excluded from participating in the advancement that was you, that my property financed. And so, again, this is a problem. And what we have to do is we have to see this on a collective level. And what I mean by that is we have to be willing as a collective to sit up and say, OK, we have to become investors. We have to be willing to come in and say, OK, I may only have this, but I'm going to have to create some form of a consortium where I join forces with uh other people who look like me who have the same mindset and interests as I do and we need to start acquiring property but more importantly what what, what we need to do in the issues where, where our, our elderly uh, our less fortunate uh, people who are in the are in danger of being gentrified and driven out and there are so many implications to serial force displacement outside of the wealth element there's a health element I wrote about that in um, in um, the war on wealth, I wrote about it in Born in Captivity. I wrote about it in The Undoing of the African-American Mind. Uh, it's important to understand that, that there is also a mental health element and a physical health element that is also a part of this serial force displacement. Every time you displace us, it's not like the entire neighborhood that's being displaced is getting up and moving to a new place with a better opportunity. We're being dispersed and we're being pushed apart and we're being separated, we're being isolated. And it's showing up in so many different areas in politics, it's showing up in education, it's showing up in our ability to collectively move together and support one another. And it's creating a more individualized mindset because the collective simply isn't there anymore. So what we have to do is first and foremost, be willing to invest in our own communities, be willing to uh, insulate our elderly uh, who have owned homes in these communities and these neighborhoods for years, for decades, and sit up and say, okay, if they can't afford to pay the property tax as we uh, beautify 
and enhance the community, we need to pr provide different types of strategies, whether through trust, whether through uh, community programs or through something that will allow those homes to be safe and those homeowners to be safe. So we protect them, we protect our interests, we control the growth and the value of our communities and we keep the outside element out. Now, obviously there have to be other places that we grow in strength and in, in power. And that's in the political arena that's gonna control how um, policies are created that will operate and move against what we're trying to do. But ultimately, we cannot be in a situation where every time we get something valuable, we sell it. Because if they're willing to buy it from you, they see something more valuable in, what, in it than what they're paying you, which means you're giving up something more for something that's more valuable than what you're getting. And, you know, we have to be careful in how we operate with that is that when I build something, what am I building it for? And the thing is, so many of us are so individual minded. We, some many, most of us are so uh, in the moment that it's about us. So what can I buy with this versus what can I build with this? What can I invest in long term with this? How can I ensure that my children and their children and their great grandchildren will have a better opportunity and a more healthier start in life than I had? I have to sit up and say, OK, I'm going to create uh, I'm going to create these mechanisms of wealth. I'm going to create uh, uh, a situation where I own property, where I own businesses, where I own assets that are protected uh, by insurance where now I am going to create trust for my children and their children. Now, what I'm going to do is in this trust, I'm going to uh, stipulate that only half of what's in the trust goes to my child and the, the next half goes to the next child. But in order to receive it, my child has to create a trust for their child and their child's child. So in essence, every generation is going to get an additional trust that the other the, the generation before them preceding them didn't get. So in other words, you can't blow all of it if because I'm not leaving you all of it. I'm leaving half of it to you. I'm giving the next half to your progeny, which you also have to, in order to receive it, build and set up a trust and grow that trust and leave it to them. And that's projected down through generation and generation and generation. And it teaches also the importance of seeing beyond yourself. When you are truly building generational wealth, you are literally living off the wealth someone passed you. What you are actually working for is gonna be passed down. So you're literally building a trust that in essence, you're putting what you're working for in the trust for the next generation. You're living off of what was left to you in your tr trust and you are actually investing and in growing that trust. So again, you have to be able to see beyond the moment. So now we're talking about a cultural paradigm. And, and I, I talk about that a lot, a collective bias, an idea that really doesn't, we're big into symbolism. So we want to drive it. We want to wear it. We want to live in it. We want to show everybody what we have. So we're big on symbolism. We're big on showing someone. And we're not big on actually building and holding because a lot of times it's not flashy. It doesn't look good. It doesn't have 
anything that says that dude is the dude of man she's really on it so we're looking for the thing that says look i made it and we don't realize that very rarely are you going to find yourself in a situation where that hundred thousand two hundred thousand three hundred thousand dollar car is going to hold value now there are car collections that you can create and th that's another way uh that the wealthy do it you, when you see somebody and they got 40 and 50 cars it's an investment they have it insured it's an asset and they built it based off of every purchase having uh an ability to hold it so it's not just some car off the showroom floor and everything that they do one of the mindsets of the wealthy is if i'm going to do something then i must have a mechanism in place that pays for it so in other words if i'm doing this if i'm traveling i'm traveling then there are investments that pay for that i'm not just digging into my account i'm creating mechanisms that work for me i'm creating mechanisms that allow me to do this i'm creating mechanisms that say uh, i'm going to take 20 percent out of this and i'm going to do this with it but the other 80 percent is going in and creating another mechanism and over and over and over again you're building something and you're going something and here's a problem that is very difficult for us as a collective is the idea the the the, the idea that I literally have to be willing to build something that I might not get to benefit from. Our minds don't comprehend that because we've been robbed of power. We've been robbed of so much that the opportunity to experience it is all we think about. So the idea that I'm going to actually sacrifice so that my progeny, my offspring will be able to live in a way that I can't. You know, we'll sit up and buy them stuff. We'll buy them stuff because that makes us feel good. But what we need to be doing is leaving them stuff, leaving them things along with the right mindset, teaching them what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. One of the things we cover in depth in Legacy Wealth is how the mindset of the wealthy differs from the mindset of the poor. It all starts with the way we think and we approach and we view things until we escape the idea that symbolism represents wealth and only wealth represents wealth. We will always go for the symbol and we will always get the okie doke because the person who sold us the symbol is the one who actually has the wealth. We're making Mercedes Benz and its uh, stockholders and shareholders wealthy. We're making Louis Vuitton and its stockholders and its shareholders wealthy. And on down the line, we're building their wealth while we walk around and show what we were able to spend. If you spend money on it and it depreciates in value, you don't have an asset. You just sit up and enrich someone else for the purpose of having a symbol. Now, there are certain things you need. You need to be able to eat. You need roof and shelter over your head. And I'm not saying walk around. Right. What I'm saying is that should be a formula. A certain percentage of your earnings should be dedicated to investing and growing wealth for the next generation. It should be untouchable by you. You shouldn't be able to touch it. You shouldn't be able to get into it because it's not yours. It's theirs. And see, we have an idea already that when they can't, that kid turns 18, they're getting the hell out of my house and I'm done with them. So our mindset is once they're 18, they're on their own. No. That's not how they're thinking. 
they're underwriting the wealth and the future of the next generation because they are ensuring that their lineage has what it needs down the line. They're not solely thinking about themselves. Let me let me give you an example. When we go out, we buy our first home. We got to go get a starter home. We scratch and we work. And sometimes it's two and three years. Sometimes we didn't fail that marriage twice when we get our first home because it just took so long because we had to get through so much debt. A lot of it's student loan debt. And here's what happens with a large money. Now, now granted, there's poverty across the board. Poverty isn't just in our community, but we have more people at the poverty line percentage-wise because that is the result of this entire thing. And I cover that in the legacy of wealth. I mean, um, the war on wealth, uh, breaking the generational code of the book, but legacy wealth, we also cover this. But check this out. This is what they're doing. If you talk to the average first-time buyer who don't look like us, the other people, they're getting 50,000, 100,000 seed money as a down payment on their home. A lot of them had, if not all, some of their college paid for. And they got funding in other ways for a lot more of it. They're in a lot less debt financially because of education than we are on average. Obviously, again, there are exceptions to the rule on both sides. But what do we do? in a situation like that. We can't close the wealth gap. People say, well, why is the wealth gap widening? Widening when blacks are making more and more money. Well, here's the problem with wealth, power, and money. It's relative. So people talk about, man, I want a million dollars. Well, a million dollars is relative in the sense of the scope of where you're operating. If you're operating in an arena where a million dollars is the top dog, where everybody there makes less than a million, owns less than a million uh, in wealth, then yeah, you, you have a certain level of power there. But if you're operating in an arena where people are in tens of millions and hundreds of millions and they're billionaires, your million means very little. And so you don't really have power. So then what we have to understand is when everybody talks about this $1.4 trillion in buying power, there are two things that they're not telling you. They got you hyped up about being the ninth. If you were a nation, you'd be the ninth wealthiest nation in the world, $1.4 trillion. Let me explain something to what they're talking about. Number one is the first thing you have to realize is anytime you're operating within the scope of a, a, a total national economy you have to look at the percentage of that 1.4 trillion in the economy we're talking about a hundred and plus trillion dollar economy so you are still less than one percent of total uh, of total spending power now the other thing is there's a difference between wealth and spending power or buying power 1.4 and buying power means that we are buying a lot of stuff on credit so what we're actually doing is going in debt debt is the number one enemy to wealth building Whenever you talk about somebody's net wealth, net worth, what are you talking about? Everything they own of value minus what they owe in debt. That's the net worth. So your debt is the number one enemy to your wealth. The more debt you have, the less wealth you have. So you want to be eliminating debt, not building it. But spending power is saying this is what we have to spend. Most of that is credit. It's not wealth. It's credit. And what happens is when we buy stuff on credit, we, again, give the economy a boost because we what operate in a debt based economy, meaning that we have to literally keep people convinced that it's OK to spend money in order to float this economy because it's debt based. It's not backed by the currency here isn't backed by anything of value, not not oil, not not gold, not 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 silver, platinum or anything like that. It is backed by debt. So in essence, 
the wealthy are the ones who are getting people to go in debt and the poor are the people who are going in debt. That's the simplicity of it. That's the explanation between why the wealth gap is widening. We're buying more stuff on credit than they are. And they are owning the mechanisms by which we th that sell us the things we buy. So we have to change that dynamic and it's not gonna happen overnight, but we have to be willing to do that. And that's the problem. We don't wanna plant seeds. We can't, we can't bring the harvest. So if I can't experience it, I'm not gonna think about my son, my daughter, my granddaughter, my grandson, my great-grandson, my great-great-grandson. I'm not thinking that far ahead. I'm just looking at what can I do? What what can I get because I want to buy this? What can I get because I want to buy that? What can I get because I want to live here? And what happens is we are constantly working against ourselves in our thinking. We're consumer-minded. It's about how much we can buy. I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to leave you with this. In doing my research to write uh, The War on Black Wealth, my 25th book, I found this interesting study. And it said that, and I could be off on the numbers, but you'll get the gist. It said that um, Blacks spend 60-something billion just for Halloween, candy, decorations, blacks. Spend another 45, 50 billion on Thanksgiving. And for the Christmas holidays, 453 billion. So now we're talking about half a trillion dollars spent in less than a three month span on things that once it's over with, it's done. We don't get to benefit from it. All the toys you buy those kids, they break them within January, they're gone. Or they already hit you up for the next thing. We're really caught up in consumerism. They make a great deal of their money off of our spending habits. For the amount of money we own or the amount of wealth we own, our spending is dis disproportionately off. We have to have a situation in which we own things that sustain value. We have to know how to protect the things that sustain value. We need to understand insurance as a wealth building mechanism, not just life insurance, but the thing, the, the, the implemented elements that we create to protect the things of value, but also using insurance annuities as a way of creating income uh, income streams down the line. All of these things are things that are at our disposal, despite the fact that we're black. And one of the things I focus on in the book is on, is showing you mechanisms that you can use right now, regardless of race, and to win at it. But you have to believe. Um, in something different than the symbol. Don't get me wrong, if you're building and you're working and you're growing and you got a plan that is projected down at least three or four generations with the mindset of teaching and challenging every generation to do the same. In other words, your trust can literally demand in order for you to receive what I've given you, you have to do X, Y, Z. And what that does is it creates a practice 
of looking three generations, four generations down. And each generation is protecting a generation you couldn't touch. So eventually you touch every generation of your lineage by the way you set it up. Why do you think the Rockefellers are still? That dude lived in the middle of the 1800s. By all measures of uh, cash evaluation, wealth evaluation, he still, if he were alive today and you converted what he had then into money now, Considering inflation and all of that, he'd still be richer than Bezos and 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 uh, Musk and all of them. He would be uh, worth almost four hundred billion. And what he did is he passed it down. I'm not praising the dude. I'm looking at it. Something else that he understood is the importance of, of trust because he understood that it's more important to have a trust I control than have my name on something. And so they created these things, and these trusts operate outside of unique and individual ownership. It's so huge, I can't get into it now, but we have people who was, who actually are going to teach that part of it. But you should you should look into irrevo uh, irrevocable uh, trust, uh, living trust, unincorporated business trust, uh, and so many other, but those are the ones you definitely need to look into because those are the things that you can use as mechanisms that is going to create the best chance of you accumulating something and protecting it against the means and mechanisms and machinations that they use to extract it from us. You Again, I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. The reason that we consistently find ourselves at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder is because we don't understand how things work. And because we don't understand how things work, we'll consistently exploit it mishandled, misused, misled, misguided, mistreated, distracted, and we end up in the same place complaining that we always end up in. You have to be willing to move beyond that and be able to see things and operate differently. You can never sit up and say, I got, uh, if, if what you have in your bank account is how you're counting your wealth, you've already lost. I'm not going to go into detail, but I think I've explained enough for you to kind of draft and grab from it, but we're going to consistently delve off into this. But yeah, that 20 million cost them, I would say five times that over the course of the lifetime of the person who sold it, not even thinking about his children, their children, and their, their children, their children, their children. He thought about the moment. Now, the only, only, only salvation that could come out of this is what he does with the 20 million. But how many times have we seen us come up with it by way of uh, settlement for something, uh, lotto, whatever? And within a short period of time, we're, we're, talking, we're broke. Why? Because we don't understand how money works. Our relationship with money is different. And, because, and, and it doesn't matter how much money you have. It matters how you think about it, what you plan on doing with it. And then there's even the spiritual component about how you pour in and give and do and whatever that we didn't even get into. So again, I really, truly hope that you guys will sign up for the course. Yes. It's $997, but it's it's worth uh, six grand. Uh, this is a full course. I mean, there's probably 12 to 18 months worth of information that we're going to teach you and share with you in six months. And we're going to give you a lifetime membership to the Epic Ram community of high achievers. But more importantly, the basic principles of wealth. Where are you putting your money? Is your money working for you? Can your money be protected as it is passed down generationally? It's going to determine whether you are good stewards of your money. Whether you, and there's a difference between money and currency. All these different things we need to understand. And because we don't understand it, we are getting 
thrashed and the wealth gap is widening. The median household wealth for whites is close to 170 something. It's 17,000 for blacks. That's median. What, what kind of power can you express with $17,000 on somebody who's got 177? That's median wealth. We have to create mechanisms. Here's another median number. I said I was done. Here's another median number. The median uh, income for a black man is 44000 Tens of thousands less than a white man. How are you going to increase that when they control your wealth because they own all the mechanisms? Ownership. You've got to create ownership. You've got to own it. That way you control what you get paid, but you also control the ability to hire other people who look like you and give them opportunity and pay them well. I'm not talking about paying people for nothing. I'm talking about paying people who can show up and do the job, paying them worth something so that they can have a living wage. One of the things that's important as a man is to be able to generate and create a living wage. Uh, Roland Sprewell, you are almost, I'm almost certain you're 100% absolutely right because that's the only thing that would justify that decision is that's 18 million. Somebody's going out and buy a five, $10 million house right out the box. And what will happen is they won't be able to afford the upkeep of that house long-term, including taxes on it. And before you know it, it'll be in foreclosure and that wealth will actually be back in the, that 20 million will be back in the hands of the white people who gave it to them in the first place. That happens over and over and over and over and over again. We consistently finance our own oppression and demise by the way that we move and spend in their economy. Um, I can't stress that enough, um, but hopefully you guys will join me and join Legacy Wealth. But whatever you do, share the message, learn, read, prepare yourself. But you cannot ever truly talk about wealth if you haven't thought about three to four generations beyond you on that note i'm out of here once again thank you guys hope to see some of you in legacy wealth i'm out of here